less time encoding details, well then our episodic memory will appear to degrade. We will forget people's names after just meeting them because we didn't really pay much attention to them in the first place. We will tell the same stories to the same people because we weren't really paying attention that much to who it was we were telling the stories to in the first place. If we don't focus on the details, we won't remember the details. But, and, and this is a big but, this is only part of the story. That is, the part that talks about what gets worse as we age. The other side of the story is this. We are spending more time on the big picture. We are, often in a very real sense, becoming more creative. In fact, it's not at all unusual for older people to take up hobbies as they age. Now, perhaps these are things they've always wanted to do but just haven't had the time. Some might take up, say, photography, or they might learn how to use computers, or paint, or knit, or a myriad of other activities that allow them to exercise their new creative inclinations. And this is the positive side of cognitive transition, and it's a side that's often overlooked. So yes, if you think of the situation involving, for example, young boys, as a young boy goes through puberty, they may lose the sweetness of their young voice, but they may gain in height and suddenly be able to play basketball better than they did before. Transitions include both losses and gains, and aging may be no different. Now I personally find this a really satisfying and sensible and well, just generally a really nice way to think about the effects of aging. Some things get better, some things not so much. Aging is not really about deterioration, it's about transition. And as the way we interact with the world changes, it should come as no surprise that our mental processes change along with that. Well, okay, maybe you're now saying to yourself, that's a really nice way to spin all this aging stuff, Jordans, but if we could avoid that memory decline part, well, that would make this whole transition even better. Is there anything we could be doing to keep our memories sharp? Well, I'm sure many of you have been told to do things like crossword puzzles or Sudoku or that sort of thing to keep your brains working hard and therefore to keep your cognitive processes in good shape. I think this is sort of correct. There's definitely nothing harmful in it, but it's not quite right. These are enjoyable things and if you do them a lot, you will get better at them and you will be exercising your semantic memory at the same time. But of course, semantic memory doesn't decline with age. If you're really hoping that your general world memory skills would stay sharp, and especially your episodic memories, well then I recommend something a little more complex, something a little more general, especially something that might allow you to develop or use that creative instinct that we've just been talking about. So perhaps you might take up something like, well, maybe dancing, or painting, or photography, or writing, any other hobby that includes the need to learn new things and to repeatedly bring to mind what you have learned. That's the episodic memory part. So let me stress that. The best thing to do is to learn things that you will later need to recall. And I can't help but point out that's exactly what you're doing right now, by the way. To expose yourself to new information, new lectures, to then think about them, and hopefully to retell some of what you've been learning to other people, well, when you do all that, you are exercising your episodic and semantic memories in a really fantastic way. Learning means using your memory. 
remembering what was taught last class, then putting new learning on top of that, all the while putting the learning you have done to use through practice. This approach works with the transition, and the learning and exercise is less specific to a given task. I would especially recommend learning something like dance, something that involves muscle skills and physical exercise. So when you combine that with a constant need to remember the steps you learned, for example, to use those to perform the dance now, you're really maximizing the experience. Procedural memory is exercising and, and getting a good workout. Episodic memory is working. Working memory is working. Heck, you're getting exercise, which is always good. So if you perhaps take the time to even go further, you could learn the history behind dance, then you're even enhancing your semantic memory as well. So really, it's a fantastic all-round memory workout, cross-training for the mind, if you will, and uh, it's social too. Dancing your way into old age? Isn't that a great image? Alright, so let's sum up. The subject of memory and aging is a far more lively subject than was once believed. First of all, some of our memory systems continue to function quite effectively into normal old age, and what appear to be problems with procedural memory were actually problems with motor function. And we now know, not from studies of memory but just from physiology, that even motor functions can be maintained by exercise into old age far more than was realized even a few generations ago. Second, while originally it looked like there was some dramatic effects of aging on some memory systems, especially episodic memory, a lot of those original dramatic effects turned out to be due to time of day effects. And when you factor those out, yes you still see a decrement, but you see a much smaller decline. It's not nearly as big as what we once thought it was. And of course, third, should we even really think about that as a decrement in memory, or is it more reflective of a general change in our cognitive approach to the world? One that, yes, may have some negatives, but also has some positives. Cognitive transition, not cognitive decline. So the conclusion seems to be that if we find ways of embracing the positives and working on the negatives simultaneously, then we can have the best of all worlds. Oh, and if you do sometimes repeat the same story, or if someone does that to you, that's not really so bad either. Lecture 24. The Monster at the End of the Book. Wow, last lecture. Well, let me share with you one more memory. It's a memory from my youth. In fact, it's a memory about my first book, or at least the first book I can remember. It was a Sesame Street book, and it featured my favorite character, Grover. The book was called The Monster at the End of the Book. And all through this book, Grover was warning me. I was the reader, he was my narrator, and he kept telling me there was going to be a monster at the end of the book. He was very worried. He was terrified of the monster. And throughout the pages, he, he would be worrying and fretting, and he was trying hard to prepare me for what was about to come. But then when the two of us got to the end, there was an amazing revelation. Grover himself was the monster at the end of the book. All our worries were for naught. I still remember how happy and relieved Grover was. Well, to some extent, it seems to me that throughout this lecture series, I've been trying to tell you that the simple way you've thought about memory was wrong, 
and that memory was, in reality, a bit of a monster. Well, okay, maybe I used the word party, but that's just because I didn't want to scare you. I also highlighted, though, that memory could take many different forms, some of which you might never have even recognized as part of that monster. I also suggested that these forms of memory interacted in complex ways that defied many of your preconceptions. And of course, I did discuss one type of memory, habits, as being a lot like Frankenstein's monster. Perhaps a nice, misunderstood monster, but in that case, we were looking at non-declarative memories, and specifically those that were so durable that we can lose conscious control of them. But now here we are, at the end of the book, at least in a figurative sense, and now you have a clear vision of what the monster actually is. And I think you'll all agree that, just like Grover himself, the monster of memory is more interesting than it is scary. And what's really gratifying from my perspective is this. There are relatively few people who have actually taken the time to understand the monster of memory as you now do. When I give short talks, by con contrast, and people then ask me relatively simple sounding questions about memory, I often feel confined to reply with relatively simple answers. Answers that are more true than they're not, but, but answers that aren't as rich as they really could be. But that's not the case now. I honestly feel like you and I, we've, we've shared virtually everything I know about memory. We now share a common knowledge base, a knowledge base that will allow us to think about the true complexity of memory and really kind of come to so, those sort of rich answers. So what I'd like to do is this, in this final lecture of the course. I would like to take what we learned from the various experiments and the various theories that I've been describing and think about what those findings tell us about memory in the context of one single question. What question? Well, it may even be the question that influenced you to be interested in this lecture series in the first place. It is perhaps the main question that is most commonly asked about memory. Ready? Here goes. Can I improve my memory? Well, and you know the answer. The simple answer is yes. And you know the longer answer, too. You know that the question about improving memory is potentially multiple, depending on which memory systems we're talking about. But we also know that when people ask this question, the part of the monster they mean is the episodic part. So let's restrict our answer to just episodic memory. Can I improve episodic memory? Well, sure. We've been drilling into our heads with repetition. The, the answer is yes. If I use organization, association, and dual coding, I can improve episodic memory. And that answer is right, at some level. But even that is too simple of an answer. That is not the monster at the end of the book answer. So now, here is the way I always wanted to answer that question, but never felt I could without confusing people. The first step to a full answer is to be clearer about the word improve. Typically, when people say they want to improve their memory, what they think is they want to remember more. But do they really? If so, then there are indeed various things we can do. Pretty simple things like the following. First, exercise your memory. And again, we do need to be clear about which memory. So many people fail to make this distinction and then they suggest very simple activities like, for example, crossword puzzles. Crossword puzzles do indeed exercise your memory, 
your semantic memory. Remember this, even the patient HM loved to do crossword puzzles. And he was unable to create any new episodic memories at all. So if it's episodic memory you're really interested in improving, the typical crossword puzzle sort of exercise just won't do. Instead, as discussed in the last lecture, I would suggest that the best way to exercise your episodic memory is with some sort of memory cross-training exercise that includes as many different memory systems, or as many parts of the monster, if you will, as possible. And I, at that point, I didn't even really emphasize the non-declarative contribution, but it's clearly there as well. For example, when you hear speech or music as part of some episodic memory, it is not the case that the speech is suddenly non-grammatical or that the music no longer follows the scales we know. So really, the best way to keep the episodic part of the monster fit is to keep all parts of the monster fit, including the non-declarative systems. I suggested that learning dance is an activity that you could consider that does just that. But, given that episodic memory is a system that we're worried about, an important consideration should be whether you will actually stick with your activity long enough to reap the benefits from retrieving the things you're learning. This is a memory-based reason to find some activity that you would really enjoy. Maybe that's dance, maybe it's not. So just learn something that you might actually wish to use. Using your learning will require retrieval of episodic memories, and that will keep it fit and strong. Second, of course, memory also benefits from some pretty simple lifestyle things, like sleep and eating the right foods. And these also include habits that you might want to cultivate a little bit more fully. Uh, foods rich in omega-3 acids and thiamine and B12, they're especially good for brain health in general, and for memory in particular. And if you don't want to do the research, here's an easy mnemonic for you. Just go to your produce section and pick up fruits and vegetables that have rich, dark colors. Deep, rich colors support deep, rich memories. How's that? Okay. But now let's give the real monster at the end of the book answer. And that answer begins by restating the answer as a question. Do you really want to increase how much you remember? Well, not so fast. Let me introduce you to Jill Price. Jill is an obsessive compulsive, but a very interesting and unique one. Most people who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder, well, they're obsessive compulsive with respect to some behavior. Maybe they must wash their hands every few minutes for fear of germs, or maybe they continually check to ensure the iron is off or the door is locked. Jill, however, is what might be called a cognitive obsessive compulsive. Just as others might wash their hands over and over, Jill relives every experience in her life over and over. In her words, she hoards episodic memories. And since she was just a child, Jill's mental life has consisted almost entirely of reliving events that occur in her life, and she does so compulsively. Now you and I, we use our working memory for all sorts of things. We daydream, we worry, we fantasize, we plan, we revisit old memories, these sorts of things. And I'm not saying that Jill doesn't do these things as well, she likely does, but probably to a much lesser extent than most of us. Instead, it seems that most of the simulations she performs in her working memory involve reliving the events of the day over and over. She doesn't do this intentionally, by the way. She just can't help herself. She's compelled to do this. She is a rote memory machine locked into some automatic setting. 
So what's the result? Well, Jill has an absolutely incredible episodic memory. For example, a reporter tried to stump Jill by asking her if she recognized just a tiny snippet of a theme song from a show that aired for only a single season when Jill was a child. Jill was not only able to remember the show, but she also recalled other details related to the experience of watching the show. I think she was about four or five at the time, and that's the age when most of us are just exiting the clouds of childhood amnesia. So if we take the initial question at face value, then this is what we all want, right? Well, be careful what you wish for. You see, there were times in Jill's life when her mother said some things to her that were a little hurtful. There were things about Jill's weight. Well, no big deal, right? All of our mothers probably said hurtful things to us at one time or another, perhaps even deservedly at times. We might have said hurtful things to them, and sometimes a war of words just escalates. Ah, but Jill, Jill replayed those words over and over, and they were ingrained in her mind. Forgive and forget? Well, when you can't forget, then the sentiment of forgiveness becomes rather fanciful. What Jill is to rote memory, others are to deep encoding. There was a famous case of a so-called mnemonist that was only referred to as S, and in, he was documented extensively by a Russian doctor named Luria. S had a condition called synesthesia, and what that means is that neurons in different parts of his brain, especially the sensory parts of his brain, seemed to be cross-wired in a strange way that made him, for example, see words in colors or that automatically generated images when he heard certain stimuli. As a result, the sorts of techniques that I suggested that you consciously perform in my lecture on mnemonics were things that S's brain just did automatically. So it shouldn't surprise you that S had an amazing memory. However, he was also sometimes annoyed by how much trouble he had forgetting things, and he was never able to hold down a good job even when he tried being a journalist, which is, you know, the sort of profession one would think would be easy for somebody with a good memory. Luria himself described S as a somewhat anchorless person who was unable to hold down any steady job. Apparently, the price of this fantastic memory was some sort of problem in terms of being a social misfit. And while having a great memory could be helpful at times, being socially accepted may actually provide much greater success and happiness. So what Jill and S show us is that our original question is really too simple. We really do not want to have a stronger memory, we want to have a selectively stronger memory. That is, we want to remember some things really well while still being able to forget other things. The things that are less important or potentially even negative in some non-useful way. Okay, so now that the question is posed this way, I can say that we actually did answer that fairly well a couple of lectures ago, at least in part. That is, I devoted an entire lecture to a consideration of the factors that govern which details of some experience are encoded in a way that ensures that certain information is later remembered. I also discussed the notion of how to downplay the negative experiences in a way that would reduce the likelihood of them being subsequently remembered. So I encourage you to really take control of encoding as much as you can to ensure that this happens, and I gave you some suggestions for how to do so.
Now, of course, all that is great if you have a good sense of what you want to remember at the time of encoding. But often the priorities of encoding are not sustained over time. For example, I have a bit of a joke that I tell my freshman students on the very first day of class. The idea is to encourage them to protect their privacy in general and in terms of their university student number specifically. But of course, I want to do so in a way that has some personal relevance. So here's the joke. Be careful who you share your personal information with, because today's boyfriend or girlfriend may be tomorrow's stalker. Okay, perhaps a pretty graphic images, but hey, images are memorable, right? Perhaps because I teach memory that over the years I have repeatedly had some students come to my office looking for a very specific kind of advice. They say things like the following. Professor Jordans, I have exams coming up and I know how important they are. However, I just broke up with my boyfriend or girlfriend and now I find I can't think about anything else. So studying feels just impossible. What can I do to ensure I don't fail my exams? Well, for those of us who know the monster of memory, let me translate that for you. It would translate sort of as the following. I filled my working memory with thoughts of this person and I formed all sorts of associations between them and virtually every other stimulus of my life. But then suddenly it was over and now everything I see or hear reminds me of what is lost. So the translation of that, these associations I have formed now keep filling my working memory with distracting images of this twit that dumped me when it should be filled with the things I would need to be thinking about to study. Now this really highlights a sub-question of the initial question. So if the initial question is, how can I improve my memory? That is, there's part of that question that goes as follows. How can I forget things that I had encoded with the thoughts that I would want to remember them only to subsequently find out that I don't. This is a lot like the problem of people who get tattoos. Seems like a great idea at the time, then suddenly they don't want the tattoos anymore. Oops, what do you do? Really, this is a question about how can I forget things that I've encoded deeply? Now, this is a question we really haven't yet tackled in this lecture series. And it is one that has implications that go well beyond the effects of breakups on exam performance. So let's, let's come at a more serious version of this question. A lot of people go through what is called post-traumatic stress disorder. For example, let's think about someone who once found themselves in the front lines of a war situation. When you're in that situation, deep encoding of all sorts of issues is very important. For example, it makes a lot of sense to spend a lot of time getting to know those people that you're on the front lines with. You need to know who you can rely on and what you can rely on them for. It also makes sense to form strong bonds with your comrades to ensure they are there for you when you need them. If you ever find yourself in the heat of battle, well now all those aspects of the emotional binding hypothesis are probably in play in a big way. You're paying attention to everything that is happening around you, encoding and binding all sorts of the details that are relevant to that situation. It's a situation of high personal threat. And you may even experience one or more of your brothers or sisters in arms being killed. This is a very personally relevant flashbulb memory. Now this is perhaps the deepest sort of encoding one can experience. And thanks to the emotional binding produced by the amygdala and the hippocampus, it is linked to a variety of things. 
like the sounds of gunfire or explosions, perhaps to sudden bright lights, whatever stimulus was present at the time of your friend's death or deaths. In this case, you didn't encode them all intentionally, not like my swooning undergrad might have, but you have definitely encoded them deeply, very deeply. And now once you are back home and away from the battle, that memory re may replay any time similar stimuli trigger it. We're not always in control of what we encode deeply. And even when we are, we may encode deeply only to later find that the resulting memory is something we would rather not continue to experience. So here, how we improve our memory is actually by forgetting. If there is some persistent unwanted memory, perhaps persistent because I encoded it deeply, what can I do to forget it? Well, once a memory is deeply encoded and strongly bound to cues, the first thing you can try to do is avoid the cues that trigger it. So for my heartbroken student, I might have suggested that they avoid the locations or the people or the songs or really anything else that they might have associated with that lost love. Now for the soldier though, that advice seems insufficient. Sure, avoid loud noises, bright lights, and war movies. Okay. However, there's actually some recent research that sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. Well, wait, it actually is out of a science fiction movie. A somewhat hokey, romantic science fiction movie called The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. In that movie, a couple breaks up, and the girlfriend goes to a doctor to have her memories of her ex-boyfriend removed from her brain. It's ridiculous, right? You can't just remove unwanted emotional memories, can you? Well, it turns out that very recent studies suggest maybe we can. One Dutch study from 2009 worked as follows. Participants were first shown pictures of spiders, and they were given brief electric shocks at the same time. And perhaps I should mention, by the way, that in most parts of the world, North America included, it's no longer considered ethical to give participants electric shocks in the context of psychology experiments. Holland's a little more liberal. So at any rate, in that study, they found that the participants who had formed this fearful memory of spiders could have their fear fearful memory dissolved if they were given so-called beta blockers. Now, beta blockers are drugs that prevent a fear response. The fear switch can literally be locked down, and the beta blockers do just that. So participants on beta blockers forget to become fearful. They're actually incapable of becoming fearful, even in fearful situations. So the suggestion is that while we may not be able to prevent certain memories from coming to mind, we may be able to de-emotionalize them by presenting the normal cues that would prompt them while preventing the emotional response, using, for example, beta blockers. So perhaps it's impossible to forget the painful memories that were deeply encoded, but you may be able to lose the pain of them. Okay. So let's see now. We've taken that original question, can I improve my memory? We've changed it to a much more reasonable, can I remember what I want? and forget what I want. And we provided strategies that we can use to do so at both the time of encoding and even after encoding when we subsequently want to forget an event, even one that was initially deeply encoded. What we've left out so far are the cases when we might want to remember an event that was not deeply coded originally. Here maybe I can at least provide a better understanding of the problem and maybe even a question about whether it really is such a problem at all. 
Autistic children are often known to have really incredible memories. In the book, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, by Mark Haddon, we are given a glimpse into the mind of one such autistic child. The book is fiction, but Mark did spend many years working with autistic children, so artistic license aside, it seems his account is accurate, at least for some children. So according to the protagonist in that book, what many people just saw as a field of cows, he sees as a highly organized and vivid representation of the world. Kind of like the following. 52 cows in all, there's 12 cows over there, three that are more black than white, five that are more white than black, four that are kind of balanced, certain ones are facing left, others are facing forward, and that one's lying down. Oh, and there's seven cows over there. You get the idea. He has exceptional perception of and subsequent memory for the details of what he's seeing. However, at the same time, he has a horrible time interacting socially with humans. Why? Well, how do you tell the difference between somebody that's angry and someone that's happy? For most of us, that's trivial. But when you think about it, it turns out that anger and happiness are actually quite similar at the level of the specific details. And no one detail really tells you the difference. So both reflect energized, animated people, speaking loud, gesticulating widely. The answer's not in the details. It's in the way those details come together to form some whole. That's where the social relevance of the signal is. This is the sort of thing that the fusiform gyrus does. It helps us interpret these kinds of holistic representations. Remember proprioception? Often this is the level at which social cues are communicated. The way those details come together to form some whole. That's where the social relevance of the signal is. This is the sort of thing that the fusiform gyrus does. It helps us interpret these kinds of holistic representations. Remember proprioception? Often this is the level at which social cues are communicated. So to really remember details like names well, you need to focus on those details. The trees, as it were. But social interactions are shared at the level of holistic representations, the forest. So whenever we find ourselves in some social interaction, we're presented with both the trees and the forest. Now, remember, humans are largely single-minded. We cannot load both the forest and the trees into our working memory. We must choose a level to attend to. If you really want to remember details like names, then the simple answer is to focus on the trees. Interact with the world in a way that more closely resembles the way autistic children do. You will, rem you will remember the details better that way. But again, is this really what you want? If you focus on the trees, you will miss aspects of the forest. Your social interactions will likely become less fluent, and that could lead to consequences that are even more embarrassing or awkward than forgetting someone's name. So it is a balancing act, and perhaps it is one where errors of some sort are bound to happen. It's a question of finding a balance that minimizes errors. Eliminating errors may be just impossible. So maybe, just maybe, the balance that you currently use is the right balance. Or anyway, is very close to the right balance for you. Maybe your brain has used its implicit memory, that is, its knowledge of the structure of the world, to find the optimal balance for you. Sure, you may want to tweak, with, tweak it a little with these intentional strategies every now and then, 
especially if you come across some information that has some very clear future relevance. But overall, maybe you do not want to make any major changes to how your memory works. Maybe the big improvement would be realizing that you do not really have to worry about how to improve your memory at all. Okay, so that's the answer I always wanted to give to the simple question, can I improve my memory? Given everything we've covered, you now know enough to decide for yourself how much thought and effort you would like to exert and devote to improving your memory. This also means that we're really nearing the end of the book, or the end of the lecture series anyway. So perhaps I have time for just one more point. What I'd like to do is to free the monster from its cage. Yeah, dramatic I know, but here's what I mean. So far I've been talking about memory, including all the various systems that make up that colloquial single noun of memory, as though it lived in the brain, imprisoned within the skull. But already we know from a couple of lectures ago that the monster of memory is bigger than our brains. It works intricately together with our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems throughout our body. Moreover, memory cannot even be caged within the confines of our individual bodies. Memories are, of course, passed from person to person. Memories also are transmitted across time and across space thanks to printed word and increasingly thanks to digital media. It may not even be a stretch to think of memories as existing at another level entirely, a level sometimes described as communal memories. Perhaps the most concrete form of such communal memories, and I mean that literally in some senses, are the libraries and museums that we build. We build museums of natural history to share our knowledge of the earth, and museums of the Holocaust to ensure that we remember the capacity within all of us to commit horrible acts. In fact, we have muse museums for almost in every endeavor that humans have engaged in. Recently, when I was driving on a highway near Ottawa, I saw a sign for a canoe museum, a museum devoted to the history and art of canoe making. Our knowledge and experience certainly are not confined to our biology. When I told you about working memory, I said that each time we repeat some item, some item that we're trying to remember to ourselves, it is like we are breathing life into that item keeping it alive for a little longer. Well, I think this is true of memory in general. Every time we remember some event or person, it is like we are breathing life into that event or person. In Dante's Inferno, Dante travels through the various levels of hell and he meets a number of tormented souls as he does. Upon learning that Dante was actually flesh and blood, and therefore that he might actually return to the land of the living, the strongest desire of many of the souls in hell was to be remembered by those who were still alive. They would plead with Dante to have others remember them. Well, hell or no, I think we all have a desire to live on in the memories of those who know and love us. To be remembered is to be still alive, even if that new life is in the mind or body of another. Thus, memory does not only guide us through life, but memory even sustains us after death. On that note, I would like to dedicate this lecture series to the loving memory I have of my dad, a father who taught me as much through his deeds as through his words and through all the memories I have of him. I thank you all for watching. I hope you learned a lot. And who knows, maybe we'll get to do this again sometime. Goodbye for now.
We hope you have enjoyed these lectures from the great courses. Our courses are now available to order online. Visit our website at thegreatcourses.com or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-832-2412. That's 1-800-832-2412. Thank you very much. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.